0: Hello, this is the Movie Morlock, James Kent, coming at you, not live, but uh, on tape. And uh, I promised an episode a week, and here it is, uh, several days later, then a week, and I apologize for that, um, I had a guest that couldn't quite sync up, hopefully we'll get to them in a future episode, uh, and then, you know, there were some movies that came out this past weekend that I wanted to watch, and then discuss on the program. So that's what I've done. A few things that have dropped on HBO Max and also Netflix. And so we'll have just a quick discussion about those. And uh, again, I'm talking about this website uh, that I was working on, and I have it. It's not the greatest website, you know. It's not going to have lots of details, but it is up and available for you to grab the episodes at Um So if anybody's looking, you can just send them right there. Uh, also, you can get the program on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and all that stuff, um, and also Podbean. And then uh, moviemorlock at gmail.com. That's where you can email me if you want to be a guest on the show and discuss a movie or just uh, send some information my way or whatever you want to do. Anyways, uh, so I've been you know, looking forward, like probably a lot of people, to this Sopranos movie. Uh, it's a prequel, kind of an origin story, I guess, of Tony Soprano and some of the uh, people that uh, were predecessors of Tony and his gang. And so, uh, this is this movie called Many Saints of Newark, and it is created by David Chase, who created The Sopranos. Uh, he co wrote it with Lawrence Connor, and it's directed by Alan Taylor. Uh, Alan Taylor has done tons and tons of uh, prestige television, uh, things like, you know, Game of Thrones and Boardwalk Empire, uh, he's done an episode of Mad Men. I mean, there's, there's not a show that he hasn't done, uh, but his real claim to fame is is he did nine episodes of The Sopranos and some of the best episodes, uh, and so he was tapped to direct Many Saints of Newark. He's also directed a couple of uh, movie movies, uh, Thor Dark World, which is, I think, the second Thor movie, and Terminator Genesis, which is one of those terrible reboots they did. Um, so his track record as a filmmaker of movie movies isn't the greatest. Um so, This Many Saints of Newark, I uh, watched it uh, Friday night when it came out on HBO Max. It's also playing in theaters, um, but I guess they've made this decision with Warner Brothers and HBO that they're going to do this day and date release for a month on HBO and then release in theaters. I still think that's kind of a mistake. I think that we're seeing now that people are willing to go to the theaters uh, and see these movies and perhaps they should be going back to that. And then, you know, after that, they could do an exclusive run on HBO and that way, HBO subscribers would still get it ahead of other, you know, sources. But whatever, that's how they're doing it. And and uh, you know, so I think a movie like Many Saints of Newark loses out because it's so tied into the TV show. Most people are like, well, I mean, I don't need to go see that in theater. I'll just see it in TV. Where I know, if there was no pandemic and things were the way they used to be, absolutely, opening weekend, I would have gone to my local theater and I would have seen Many Saints of Newark. So, I don't want to get into too many spoilers of a film like Many Sins of Newark, because if you're a Sopranos fan, you're going to want to watch it. And I definitely would recommend, if you're a Sopranos fan, to watch it, because, you know, it does complete parts of the story. But unfortunately, the film isn't that good. I mean, that's just plain and day. I mean, I didn't hate the movie. Um, There were some things to like about it. And, you know, I mean, it was sort of a guilty pleasure in that, sure, i a big Sopranos fan. It was nice to see sort of what these younger versions of some of the characters would be like. Um, And there's definitely a few things to really enjoy about it. Something I didn't like about it at all was the cinematography by Kramer uh, Morgenthau. He's done a lot of TV, did some Game of Thrones, and he also did some episodes of Boardwalk Empire, and he also shot Thor The Dark World. And I felt this movie looked very muddy, um, it did this sort of weird focus vignette thing that seems to be popular these days, uh, a lot of these digital films. Um, and these cinematographers, they're playing around with digital and trying to make it look interesting, I guess. And I feel that digital is the worst when they're doing a period movie, and that is definitely the case here. Um, and it doesn't look like the look of The Sopranos, I think is another thing. Maybe they were trying so hard to make it feel like a movie instead of the TV show, but it really just, it didn't feel like a Sopranos-looking film. And, of course, The Sopranos now has been over since 2007, which is, you know, 14 years ago. That's a long time. I feel that with the script, you know, these people got a little rusty on what they're supposed to do with Sopranos. And I feel like while some of the one-liners were funny in the movie and they felt very much like sopranos it didn't the movie it didn't feel like it belonged in this movie i guess, <laughs> I guess is the thing and the main problem is the story that they decided to tell it's not very engaging uh, and i wonder if the film was supposed to be longer and they found that a lot of stuff wasn't working, so they trimmed it to a two-hour film, which is weird because a movie like this, you know, these mafia stories, they're usually epic in scope. So you're thinking at least a two-and-a-half-hour movie. This is completely just two hours, and you felt very threadbare that there was a plot pretty weak, and there's a story somewhat involves. It starts in kind of like two places. You get uh, like 1967-1967 and these Newark riots, and then you also have, you know, flash forward about four years later, I guess, and that's where you get a teenage uh, Tony Soprano. So there's a younger version of of Tony, played by a kid who who looks a lot like uh, Anthony Jr. in The Sopranos when Anthony was very little, which I thought was interesting because, you know, you see a resemblance of the father. Uh, The teenage version of Tony Soprano was played by Michael Gandolfini, James Gandolfini's son, and I thought that characterization is very successful in that he is sort of the spitting image of his father, um, and you can imagine that it, what Tony Soprano would have looked like uh, growing up—that it would have been this kid—and just did some of the mannerisms and the, the sort of pouting and the eyes. Um, so it wasn't just a mimic. I mean, I really think he embodied. Uh, what a young Tony Soprano would be. Unfortunately, the story they gave for him uh, wasn't a good story. Uh, While I would think a lot of people going into this movie would think that this is a story told through Tony Soprano's eyes, growing up with all these mobsters and how he gets involved and how ultimately he starts the journey to become the Tony Soprano that we knew from the show but that's not really the story they told. Tony Soprano is a side character, and they do go back to him several times, but that's where it gets very disjointed because they just decided not to do a full Tony story that the payoff in the end doesn't really add up. Um, I mean, this kid, Tony, doesn't really have a great father figure. Uh, John uh, Bernthal plays Tony Soprano's father, Johnny Soprano, um, which is a character mentioned, In the series, uh, but not there. And he is, of course, the brother of Junior Soprano, who is a big figure in the uh, Soprano story. He's played by Corey Stoll, a great character actor who does a great job, I think, of Junior. And if anything, while I don't think the story is really great, there is an interesting uh, piece of the puzzle that gets resolved in this movie um, that ties into the series. And, of course, if people haven't seen the series in a long time, they might be stretching to kind of piece this all together. But it definitely adds some dynamics if you go back and watch The Sopranos. Uh, Again, I'm not going to go any spoilers here, but the thing is is that if you had never watched The Sopranos before, I don't think that you're going to find this many Saints of Newark that engaging. Uh, So what is the story? The story really involves – a character uh dickie moltesante the moltesantes i f- believe there's like there's a cousins aspect to this and it's not very clear i mean soprano's experts can tell you exactly who everything is but i feel like uh, somebody's married to somebody's somebody <laughs> whatever uh but Dicky moltesante his eventual son is christopher moltesante tony soprano is kind of the father figure to christopher because this, father, uh, Dickie Moltisanti, was murdered. Um, That's no secret. That's always talked about in the story. However, the story of how Dickie Moltisanti was murdered plays into The Sopranos and Christopher's journey into becoming a made man, and the question is whether or not that story was ever true. Uh, This movie answers some of those questions in an interesting way. And so, instead of uh, a story about Tony Soprano, you really have a story about this guy, Dickie Maltesante, uh, whose father is played by Ray Liotta, and Ray Liotta plays this guy, Hollywood Dick Maltesante, so he's the elder Maltesante, who's just returned from Italy. His, the wife is not in the picture anymore. He has a new bride, a very, very young Italian woman. I thought played very interestingly by Michaela De Rossi. She's a newcomer and uh, just a striking Italian beauty, um, a real Italian, uh, somebody that doesn't speak much English. And so there's a journey there and she will play heavily in all of the events that kind of unfold in the movie. Uh, There seems to be a rival gang, if you will, um, and that is with an African-American uh, group that works with the Italian mafia, and one of these characters, Harold McBrayer, by, played by Leslie o- Odom Jr., who's getting a lot of work these days, probably because of Hamilton. You can see why he'd want to be part of the Sopranos world. Unfortunately, if this is going to be the eventual main uh, antagonist of Dickie Maltesante. you got to build up that relationship better. Uh, it's pretty weak and thin um, and there just seems to be a few events that might kind of spurn their rivalry but it doesn't really add up to much unfortunately and it's not very strong. You don't really care and the movie seems more interested in just trying to be a little bit of a character study uh, but again, it feels like an hour is missing of this film. It's two hours but it feels like it should have been three and maybe at three hours some of this stuff would have made more sense. So some of the things that happen, some of the plot moves in the movie don't make a lot of sense. And that's really what kind of uh, strangleholds it. Uh, Another character that I want to mention is Livia Soprano, which is Tony's mom. And Tony's mom factors pretty heavily in the first season of Sopranos. And then the second season, I mean, she was clearly going to be uh, a very big part of the show, but in real life, the actress died, and so they uh, did kill off the mom in that fashion, and uh, it was that's kind of a shame. But the shadow of the mom and the way she behaved towards Tony kind of uh, haunted him throughout the series. Uh, so, you know, you want to make sure that this character, it makes sense. And Vera Farmigia plays Livia Soprano and it's amazing it's really it's like she embodies the elder character version and she turns her into somebody that's uh, you know it's it's kind of funny and comic relief but there's it is, there is a real character there and I think she's one of my favorite parts of the movie and she does get some of the best lines and she just delivers them uh flawlessly and you really do feel for a few minutes, like you're back in a Sopranos world. Uh, it's also kind of interesting that she bears a resemblance uh, to Edie Falco a little bit, who eventually becomes uh, Tony's, you know, she, Tony's wife in the series. And there's definitely a little bit of an edible complex to Tony and even his mom's relationship. And so it's funny to see where he might pick someone to be his wife who was a lot like his mom in many ways. Um, so I thought that there's these little side things that are interesting about the film, which is maybe why it's worth checking out. Then um, there's some other weird little picadillos. Uh, and some of it's like just the way that they chose to like make this film. And obviously this is in the late 60s, early 70s, so a lot of characters smoke in the movie. Um, and of course, since uh, probably when The Sopranos was originally on, there's different rules in Hollywood. Uh, you can't smoke real cigarettes anymore on screen. I mean, it's you know for safety of the actors and stuff, so it's always like kind of fake. But in the case of like Livia Soprano, there's a scene towards the beginning, they're at like a, a party. Um, I think it's uh, Tony's sister is getting her confirmation and Vera Fajima is like smoking at a table and it looks very unrealistic. In factually, the smoke coming out of her mouth, it almost looks like she was vaping or something. And that's possibly something they're doing these days. But then, in a couple of scenes later, uh, they show Michela Dorossi, the Italian uh, bride of Dickie Moltisanti. Uh She's uh, Giuseppina Moltasante and she's smoking. And it's very realistic looking and it comes so hot off the heels of the other that it's kind of distracting when you have somebody who's really smoking versus somebody who's doing some kind of fake vaping thing. Um, So these are just these little things that just annoy me about a film and take me right out. Uh, So it's, you know, it's kind of like this weird mixed bag. I sort of had a good time watching this movie, but I also don't think that it was very strong. And I think that some of the plot points hinge on things that you could see coming a mile away. And that's a little disappointing because I always thought that that was one of the great strengths of The Sopranos was that it would surprise you. And it did things that other shows had never done. But, of course, you know, Sopranos debuted over 20 years ago and a lot has changed because of The Sopranos. And so now The Sopranos itself, it's not really relevant. However, (laughs) however, the film ends – with the potential that you could see a new series born that might follow the teenage Tony Soprano into his world of crime. Which, by the way, the film doesn't do a really good job of because it doesn't really cement any relationships with Tony and these people who are supposed to be his mentors, you sort of see at the end where Tony's going to go into that world, but it doesn't really add up as to why. Um, So they do leave the potential that a new series could be born, and David Chase did ink a new deal just the other day with HBO Max, so potentially, maybe we're going to get some more Sopranos in a different way, and I actually do think that could be an enjoyable show. So, uh, you know, mixed bag on the movie, but... It does look like there's some interesting potential. Now, the next day, this weekend, I watched a film. It's a remake of a Danish film. Uh, and it's, it's got the same title, but was in English, called The Guilty. And sort of actiony guy, uh, Antoine Fuqua, he directed it. Uh, it's an adapted screenplay by Nick uh, Pizzolatto, who wrote the really great first season of True Detective. Uh, it's a 90-minute bottle movie. Uh, which our uh, good old uh, previous co-host there, Teal, loved bottle movies. And he actually, many years ago, told me that I should try to watch The Guilty when it was just a Danish film, and I never got to it. Um, And in this time, it's got Jake Gyllenhaal in the film, and he's got pretty much the only on-camera speaking role. There's there's a few others, but most of the uh, speaking roles are on the phone because Jake Gyllenhaal is an officer who's been sort of reassigned to desk duty due to some kind of incident, uh, which he's going to a trial for the next day. and. He has to uh, field these 911 calls. He's very got a lot of anger issues, and he gets a call. It sounds like a, a woman has been kidnapped, and he is now trying to help stop this from happening, and it seems like that there's some need for redemption of his character, so he feels the need to save a life on the verge of this trial where everybody's kind of turned their back to him, and it's a very silly movie. So his behavior at this uh, 911 center is ridiculous. It doesn't feel realistic at all uh, when you have this type of situation happening. And you just don't believe that these are the things that would actually go on in a real emergency situation. Um, there's also a backdrop that there's these massive uh, wildfires happening outside of uh, Los Angeles that are kind of plugging up resources. Uh, so that is supposed to fit into things, but essentially, this incident that's happening, uh, there's more to the story, of course, that meets the eye, Um, and as this 90-minute movie gets further along, uh, it just gets more and more ridiculous, and the things that Jake Gyllenhaal does just make no sense, any of his motivations, and... When it's over, you're just so happy that the movie is over. I mean, I hated this movie. I really did. Um, So, you know, certainly if you like this kind of genre, you know, go for it. If you've seen the Danish original and you really loved it, maybe you should watch this new version and then tell me if it was like, ooh, that was really bad and here's why. Because I'm not – this movie was so terrible that I have no desire now to go watch the Danish film, especially if the plot is anything like this one. But – I'd be interested in hearing if it was different. So, like I said, if somebody has seen the original and then watches this film, I'd love to have their take. Uh, You could come on and tell me about it, or at least email me at moviemorlock at gmail.com. That would be great. Um, I'm going to briefly mention another film that is in a way a bottle movie, not, not quite. Uh, it's been around for a few years on Netflix, and I don't know why my wife suddenly decided she wanted to watch this. Um, I knew about it a few years ago, and I kind of thought it might be amusing, so we'd you know watch it, but she put it on, and uh, we watched this thing. It's called Destination Wedding, and it's another movie that's about an hour and a half, and it has Keanu Reeves in it and Winona Ryder, And essentially what it boils down to, it's a two-person play, basically, where there's these two characters that have been sort of thrust together to go to a destination wedding at San Luis Obispo in uh, sort of central California, northern California, I guess. They end up having to be on the same plane and then the same bus and they're in the adjoining rooms and they are two people that would be hard for most people to get along with. And so they bicker and fight. And it's actually written and directed by the guy who did Mad About You with Helen Hunt and Paul Reiser. And so it has that same sort of rat-a-tat, back-and-forth, you know, battle of wits type of thing. And you know what? It's only about an hour and uh, 25 minutes, and it grows pretty long, I think, by the end of it. But it kind of goes up and down a roller coaster because – Keanu Reeves and Winona Ryder get to, I think, do stuff that they don't normally get to do, playing like comedy and playing off each other and having a ton of dialogue to have to interplay with. And they're the only speaking roles in the entire movie. So they go from situation to situation and there are people around them, but we are focusing just on their conversations. And I think that's all you really need to know about the film. I don't want to give away anything about why they're there, etc., cetera, what they do, any of that stuff. It's just if you're looking for something really throw on the background, kind of watch it, um, and it really doesn't need to be much of anything, you know. There's a couple of amusing laughs, so I'm going to be honest. Uh, and I certainly liked it a hell of a lot more than The Guilty. <laughs> I guess this was a busy week for me watching stuff. There was a film that I watched uh, later Saturday night after uh, kind of getting off of this Guilty thing. And we were looking on Criterion, and October 1st is struck, so there's a bunch of new things on Criterion that you want to check out. And one of the things that's up there is director Edgar Wright, he has a new film, uh, Last Night in Soho, coming out at the end of the month. Sort of a nostalgic 60s night, but there's also, I guess, a little bit of horror thrown into the film. I don't know much about it. I'm trying to stay kind of clear of those details because I do want to watch that movie and I don't want to know too much ahead of time. But... In anticipation of that film, he has curated, uh, I don't know, maybe 10 movies that are all influences on him. And so we took a look at what are those offerings. And one of them that caught our eye was a film called Beat Girl. This is a British film and it's from 1960. And it actually uh, was ready in 1959. However, the content Gave it an X certificate, which back in England when they used an X certificate, it just meant it was for adults and kids couldn't get in to see it. But the company had a whole bunch of those movies, so you could see that filmmakers were already gravitating towards more adult-themed content. They didn't—they were sick and tired of doing things that you know were bland, and they wanted to kind of explore a little bit beyond the reaches of what they'd been allowed to do before. So they had such a backlog of these movies that were Certificate X that they held it until 1960. In the United States, I think it was cut and it was rebranded as a movie called Wild for Kicks. And it takes place, again, in the late 50s, uh, England, as things were starting to change with teenagers, and it features, this was the debut of an actress, Gillian Hills. She plays Jennifer Linden, a, a teenager to a father. The mom's not around. It was like a divorce or something, and then the mom's not mentioned. Uh, the father is kind of an architect, very visionary, thinking about building sort of the metropolis of the future. And his name is David Farrar. He plays the father, Paul Linden, and he has just returned from three months abroad somewhere with a French bride, Nicole, and she's played by Noelle Adam. Now, here's the interesting thing. Jillian Hill's who plays the daughter, Jennifer. She is also artistic. She goes to some fancy school and she's very spoiled, right? So she's daddy's girl. They've got money. And she's also, you know, a teenager. And so she feels very threatened when this young French bride comes in. She's determined to make her life hell. And of course, she hangs out with the cool kids, these kids who want to be beatniks, like the beatniks that exist in the United States. And the most fascinating thing is these kids all look pretty adult even though they're supposed to be teenagers however it shows you what did kids look like back then because jillian hills when she shot this movie wasn't even quite 15 years old and that's pretty shocking when you think of it and the way that this character behaves and there's even some scenes where they had to use a body double um there's like a strip tease thing and it's not nude or anything but you know you can't have a A person who's not even fifteen years old, uh, doing these scenes. Uh, So it was pretty risque stuff, I think, for the time. Uh, It's a very silly tame movie by today's standards. But I'm trying to think about it. Like, what was audiences and teenagers who might have snuck in and seen this movie? They must have think, "Whoa!" So. the kids hang out at this beatnik coffee shop, right? They're they're straight edge, right? Alcohol's a no no uh, because they have a friend who they didn't think is drinking cough syrup and discover that he's drinking alcohol, and they they frown upon that. But you know, smoking cigarettes is like still cool, and drinking a lot of coffee is cool with these kids. And across the way, there's a strip club called Lay Girls, and one night. This woman comes in from the strip club and is getting something at the coffee shop. And meanwhile, the girl's stepmom now, the French bride, comes in to get her to come to like lunch or something. She had skipped out on it. And there's a reunion of sorts of the woman who works at the strip club and the French bride, Nicole, they somehow know each other. There's a past there from France. And that's all that this uh, girl, Julian Hills, needs to try to uncover the truth behind the French bride who Potentially might have had a more sordid life in France because she wants to do anything to wreck this marriage. It's Pretty hilarious. And uh, so she starts to try to get involved in the strip club, which is run by very young, like late 30s Christopher Lee. And he's not in a vampire outfit. <laughs> he's in a strip club owner uh, suit. Uh, and he's quite good as a sort of very nefarious, uh, sleazy strip club owner. And then another interesting thing about the film is the teenagers that are sort of the group and they're in almost every scene where there's a group of kids dancing and stuff. There is a character who goes by the name of Plaid Shirt in the credits and he's always wearing this uh, plaid checkered shirt and the movie's in black and white, but it's probably one of those red and black uh, plaid shirts. A very young, like 18 years old at the time, Oliver Reed and it's really wild to see him just as a young boy. And then another in the group is this actress, Shirley Ann Field. She plays this character, Dodo. And the fascinating thing about that is just a couple years later, both Oliver Reed and Shirley Ann Field would show up in another British uh, sort of schlocky film called These Are the Damned by Joseph Losey, which in the earlier part of this year we talked about. I watched this film and they play brother and sister in that uh, film. So I was instantly like, wait a minute who's this Dodo? She looks familiar. And I looked up, it was Shirley Ann Field. And then I was like, I think she was in These Are The Damned with Oliver Reed. And of course she was. So this movie, again, it's another one of those like hour and 23 minute films, which is I think how I got to see so many of these films this weekend is that uh, Destination Wedding, a little bit under an hour and a half, The Guilty, hour and a half, Beat Girl, Under an hour and a half. And then, of course, uh, Many Saints of Newark is just two hours. Those are the films that I watched this weekend. Quite a lot. But then, yesterday, we took on the Squid Game Challenge. Uh, Squid Game, uh, and I'm not going to get into spoilers of this. I'm just going to kind of give you the setup. Netflix had put out, and and it's funny with Netflix, they don't seem to do a lot of promotion early on. I never know when things are going to show up and then suddenly they're there. And Squid Game is one of them. Uh, There's this thing that whenever you're scrolling through Netflix, if you stop on something for like two seconds, it starts to just suddenly play a preview. And that was the case of Squid Game, which of course the title, Squid Game. And they start showing you a few scenes And it looks like it's some weird game show, reality game show from Korea, and Netflix has a lot of foreign imports that they put up. And you you watch a couple of seconds here, and I'm like, okay, there's some weird futuristic reality show game that they got that's like a big phenomenon in Korea or something, and I'm not gonna watch that. And then I hear it's like, the last couple of weeks I've been hearing all about this Squid Game, right? It's getting very popular, it's becoming a national phenomenon, And I'm thinking to myself, what could be so popular? Why why is watching this reality show game popular? Well, I come to find out that it is not a reality show game. If I watched the entire trailer on Netflix, which I had not, you'd pretty quickly realize by the end that this is probably not a reality show, but that there's some kind of series where there's a nefarious game being played. So I finally read enough about what the series was to be intrigued. And my wife was intrigued too, and she'd actually already started watching like the first 20 minutes of the first episode. But she liked it enough that she said, well, I wanna go back and we'll rewatch it. We uh, had some time yesterday, and we ended up watching four of the nine episodes and about 15 minutes into the fifth episode. And now we're really hooked. We gotta continue uh, binging this thing and finish it this week. Uh, It's a really fascinating show. Um, You know, I don't think it's as original as people might think it is. Um, There's a lot of different – it borrows from a lot of different things. But ultimately, it is a satirical, I think, darkly satirical look at class in Korea. Um, So that's like what was interesting about Parasite and class struggles and how there's the wealthy and then there's everybody else. And this film, I think, or series takes it a step further. And there's certainly parallels that you could see in America where if you have gotten yourself so far down the hole, where's the opportunity for you? Um, in this case, we're looking at people who, uh, for one reason or another, are massively in debt. And essentially, this film, or this again, this series makes the point that how, what is the worth of their life? if they're living an existing day to day where bad things are going to happen to them if they can't pay off these massive debts, which they just can't. So that means they're going to have to do nefarious things or continue gambling or whatever to get themselves out of the hole, but they're probably just going to get themselves deeper in the hole. And then the long and short of it is, as you come to learn, these people are sort of followed and reached out to with an interesting opportunity to make a lot of money by playing a series of games. And They're already in such debt, et cetera, that they're like, well, you know, you can do this or you don't have to do this, but you're probably not going to enjoy the rest of your life. So these people sign up, not knowing much else about the details of what they're going to do. And there's a lot of uh, secrets about how they're going to get there to this place. And then they find themselves like 456 of them to play this series of games. But there are consequences to these games, and that's really all I want to say. But I will tell you that the show is exceedingly violent, exceedingly so, Um, and that may not be to everyone's taste, but it finds its ways to twist and turn and keep things very interesting and introduce new facets uh, to the story that really hook you. And then ultimately, you really uh, it, it slowly builds into these characters uh, that you find interesting, and then it does delve even deeper into the human psyche and what drives humans and greed and other motivating factors. The movie's got some bits of Lord of the Flies in it. Uh, it also feels at times a little bit like Pasolini's uh, uh, solo, the 120 days of uh, Sodom, and just in the way that behaviors when you're under captivity uh, can shift and change. And also there's a series of masked people and there's a hierarchy there and these people are tasked with doing different things with the contestants. And that reminded me a little bit of Pasolini's uh, solo as well. Even within them, there are different motivational factors. I think it kind of gets into the humanity of uh, rules of a game, but then also how people look for opportunities within a game to cheat for their own survival or for their own financial gain. Um, and that makes its way into the people who are running the game as well as the contestants. Uh, so there's a lot of fascinating aspects to the show that make it really great entertainment to watch. And uh, it's weird great entertainment, but I mean, I think it's just something that it's definitely a show for its time. And I think that's what anything, when something breaks out and becomes a sensation, it's because a lot of people can relate to the things going on. Um, And, you know, we're in a pandemic, so we're kind of locked down our lives to some degrees, larger or smaller. They're certainly not what they used to be, um, where we were all perceived to have these freedoms, but we just can't do some of the same things we wanted to do or some of the things that we would do aren't even there. I mean, there's just businesses that aren't there anymore. And uh, like I said, I have a movie theater. It was an eight screen theater. They were not big screens. It was pretty, kind of, I don't want to say fully run down, but you know, it just any given day you get in the wrong theater and the projection wouldn't be the greatest and the sound could be kind of wonky, but at least I could see movies and I wouldn't see a ton of films there. But I, you know, I'd say a good eight to 10 films a year and so it's tough to not have those things anymore. We got to adapt. We got to change, right? And that's a lot about this particular show. You know, it talks about are these people's lives any better risking them at these games versus what they were out in the outside in the so-called free capitalist society that they're all a part of. So again, it raises a lot of interesting questions. Uh, I'm not quite halfway through, uh, or almost halfway through the series and i'm looking forward to watching the whole thing so i highly recommend people uh, checking that out especially if you're looking for something to binge Uh, i'm also very much enjoying and it only comes out once a week it's a hulu show and it's called only murders in the building and it's got steve martin and martin short and selena gomez and they all live in this new york city uh, apartment complex sort of the upper west side i think and, or Upper East Side, one of those sides, <laughs> I can't remember. Uh, and there's a murder in the building and then somehow they all come together to try to solve it, but through a podcast, cause they're all fans of true crime podcasts. And there's lots of twists and turns and smart writing And it's just great to see a TV series with uh, Steve Martin and Martin Short. And then Selena Gomez is great. She goes toe-to-toe with them. And uh, a lot of funny stuff, a lot of interesting stuff going on in the show. Uh, So that's just another fun show to watch every week. And it's not like Netflix where they drop all the episodes. You actually have to wait every week to watch them. That's been on for a few weeks. So if you haven't checked that out, now you have something that you can watch, a good seven episodes. The new episodes drop on Tuesdays, and I highly recommend that. Um, so there's a lot of things to recommend, and then, like I said, there were some mixed reviews on this program. But that's pretty much all I wanted to tell you this week. Uh, I hope that in the coming weeks I can get some of these guests on. And like I said, I still want to have you, the listener, on to discuss films. I love just talking to anybody about movies, and uh, we've got some good stuff coming up. And I do hope to get to the theater um, I know I can't get there opening weekend uh, to see Dune and the French Dispatch, but they're going to both be playing at the theater that's about an hour and 40 minutes away from me, so maybe the weekend afterwards, I might be able to get up and see them both in the theater, which I'd like to do. Uh, there's the James Bond movie, and that's coming out, but unfortunately, I'd have to take another trip, an hour and a half, to go see that, and I'm just not going to make you know trip after trip, so... James Bond, I might have to wait for it to stream, uh, even though I see most of these James Bond movies in the theater. So it'll be disappointing that I can't go to the theater to see that. And that's one where if my theater locally was still in existence, I definitely would have seen it. Um, So certainly drop me a line if you get to see it in the theater and tell me, how is it? You know, is it worth it or whatever? Because sometimes those James Bond movies are hit and miss. Uh, You know, Skyfall was great. The next one, Spectre, eh, not so great and then don't know about this last one with Daniel Gregg. But I'm hoping it's good. All right, everybody. Uh, this is the Movie Morlock. James Kent, signing off. Again, moviemorlock.com and MovieMorlock at gmail.com if you want to send me a note. Until then, go watch some stuff, uh, whether it's the streaming or if you get to the theater. So long, everyone. <laughs>